Amen, you may be seated. My name's Ian. Uh, I'm a friend of Todd and Beth's and Dennis's, and they let me come on weekends that uh, they want to break, but I didn't know Todd was going to be here, so this is pretty nerve-wracking for me right now. Uh, I should have worn my collar, but I forgot it at home. I hope you had a good Christmas. Uh, I had a good Christmas. Uh, Christmas is a time for children, isn't it? And children always come with unexpected consequences, don't they? Uh, anybody have children in the last couple years here? Raise your hand. Anybody? Some new kids? Yeah, brother, I, I feel you. I have three kids, uh, two four-year-olds and one five-year-old. And so Christmas is a time of chaos, bills, and prayer for us and our family. But, you know, when you have kids, there's always these unexpected consequences. Like one of the unexpected consequences of having a child is that you lose lots of sleep, right? I didn't think about that before I had kids. I think about it a lot now that I have them. Because when you welcome a child into the world, somehow their life now dictates your life. Their life somehow shapes your life, right? And that's the point of children. You welcome them in, into your life, and then their life shapes yours. Uh, children also have unexpected consequences for your other relationships. Like, I learned some very significant things about family members this year that I didn't know before. Like, the main thing is this, you know, when you're raised as, as a, your own person, as a child, you think that your, your parents love you and your mom loves you because every Christmas you get a present and they care for you. But when you have children of your own, your parents no longer love you anymore. <laughs> they, don't, they could care less about you. There's nothing for you under the tree. It's all about the children that you've brought into the world. That's an unexpected consequence of having kids is that you lose the love of your parents. Well, uh, you know, Christmas is a time for children. And in fact, it's, a, it's a, such a time that we sanitize so much about our world. People who are normally depressed start to talk about joy. People who are usually in despair talked about hope. People who are lost talk about being found. You know, it's one of those times that the categories of our lives start to shift. And because of that, we spend a lot of time and energy keeping that moment, you know, whether it's the perfect Christmas album that reminds us of that perfect time in our childhood, we want it on all the time, or it's the smell of the candles burning or the special foods being made. And we want to kind of like keep that feeling. And it's a very sanitized feeling. In fact, if you listen to Christian radio, it's a, a, it's a story that's safe for the whole family. But the irony about Christmas and the irony that I've been invited to explore with us is this incredibly uh, joy-filled, child-centric, very sanitized Western story about presence and about a savior of the world is set against the backdrop of genocide, basically. That the coming of the Messiah, the coming of God's promised one, invokes such a horrific response from those in power that there was this unexpected consequence of having a child. And part of the unexpected consequence of this child coming into the world was that this child was different from other children. See, other children come into the world and we are filled with hopes. But most of those children grow up to be us and the hopes get defeated. But this child was different. This child really was the hinge pen of history. The one upon whom all hopes have been put upon and all hopes will be put upon. This child was love with skin on. One of my favorite theologians is a guy named 
Herbert McCabe, and he said, if you do not love, you will not be alive, but if you love well, you'll be killed. So it doesn't surprise me that when love put skin on, it started to intimidate those who live and reign not by love, but by fear, by power. See, love is dangerous because love makes us feel weak. If you've ever been in love, you know that, right? People in power don't like to feel weak. One guy who didn't like to feel weak, especially in the ancient world, was a man named Herod. They called him Herod the Great. I wonder if he made that title for himself. I mean, it's hard to imagine leadership took this form in the ancient world. But leaders in the ancient world, for their own egos, would build big buildings to themselves and give themselves fancy titles and have people bow down in obeisance and surrender their will to the will of the one in charge. Things have changed with those in power, I know. Well, Herod was pretty eccentric. I mean, he used to build buildings to himself all the time because he figured he needed a legacy. So in Israel, there was the rebuilding of the temple. There's other facilities that Herod, this puppet king put in power by Rome, would use his power to try to make his name great. And because his whole life was about making his name great, anyone else who became a threat to that greatness had to be eliminated. Three of Herod's sons were killed because Herod was so petrified that they were a threat to his rule and reign. In fact, it was said in the ancient world, it was better to be Herod's pig than his son. A Jewish king, you'd rather be his pig than his son. Because this was a man so overwhelmed with fear that his kingdom was so fragile that any person who was a threat to it would take it away. And so how do we hide our fragility in our world? We hide it with violence. There's no more fragile act than a violent act. We use violence to conceal our fragility, don't we? Well, Herod does something unimaginable, an unattended consequence of a child coming into the world, the child known as pure love, the child that would save the world. Herod hears about this child and he hears that these men from foreign lands have come to worship him as a king, a king. We all know there only could be one king. And so Herod, out of anger and frustration, does something that makes the song Silent Night seem a far cry from the experience of mothers in Israel as a result to Jesus' birth. Jesus' birth wasn't a silent night for thousands of moms who lost their children two years and younger. In fact, it says in the, the text that there was this uncontrollable sorrow that couldn't be quenched. Think about that, Jesus comes in the world and a prophecy is fulfilled. Matthew's all about fulfilled prophecies. And one of the fulfilled prophecies is about a woman so overwhelmed with grief and sadness that she can't be comforted. There's no TV show to distract her mind. There's no present to get her mind off of it. Like she lives in radical absence from a child who was and now isn't because there's a king who lives in fear of somebody who is pure love. We don't see these stories represented in our houses, right? Over our fireplaces, there's the picturesque story of Jesus, but there's this other story 
where there's not a child in the middle of a manger, but there's the absence of a name and a person who used to be at that table. I mean, God sent his son into the world and thousands of people had to die for it. This isn't the Christian story that we're so used to hearing around this time. We, I mean, Ian, give us a dose of optimism, but it's in our Bible, and I think it's in our Bible for a couple reasons. One, it's interesting that this moment of history where Jesus can barely eat on his own, <laughs> where he had to live in utter dependence on a family that cared for him, that even from the very beginning of his birth, his life was a threat. And therefore Jesus, as Todd said, had to be a refugee. I was in Thailand recently, and I went up to the border of Thailand and Burma, and at the border of Thailand and Burma, there's Burmese refugees that are trying to sneak across because Burma is a military state. Some of these kids are four or five, and I was with missionaries who accept these children from a different nation to try to give them freedom and a chance at life. Jesus is a slave in his own land. So where does he leave to go get hope? He leaves to Egypt. Now, if you know the biblical story, I mean, that just this should be crazy. Egypt for Jews isn't a place of freedom. It's a place of slavery. Yet the irony is this. God is born into the place where his people are, and yet he's a foreigner there. So he has to go to the place of slavery to find freedom. But it's also that God could fulfill a prophecy. That just like Egypt was the slave owners of the Jews, God's chosen people. And God called the Jews out of this place, out of this refugee camp known as Egypt, into being witnesses of God's love in the world. Jesus, too, is gonna be called out of Egypt. But he's gonna be called out of Egypt not only as the new Israel, representing God's relationship with the new people, but he's also the new Joshua, the one who's going to come redeem and guide all people into the promised land, even if that promised land is occupied territory. Jesus has the power to take occupied territory and redeem it and turn it back into the promised land. Isn't that good news? Because I don't know about you, I got a lot of occupied territory in my heart. There's a lot of areas that are supposed to be home that are filled with sadness and sorrow at times. And yet Jesus is the one who comes as a stranger but also as the king of all of those who live their life in fear and in exile. Tom Wright, one of the great New Testament scholars of our time, says exile is the whole motif of the New Testament. <laughs> that there's people who live outside of the freedom of their own homeland, where they have a just and righteous king, and they feel like they're in exile, like they have no place to lay their head. Jesus is born into that world as a slave that brings freedom. And the consequence of Jesus coming into the world is that these children lost their lives, and it's part of our Christmas story to reflect upon that. And that helps us, lastly, to think about what type of child this child is and what type of people does he shape in the world? Obviously, this Jesus is a refugee, is somebody who comes as an exile and a savior of exiles. But he also creates a people who are a natural threat to those in power. And I don't mean just in power in terms of authority. I mean people who use things like fear, violence, oppression to get their way. If you have an allegiance 
to God over that, then naturally Herod's not gonna be your friend. And that's what makes Christians amazing, and that's what makes the Christmas story amazing, because this is the true Christmas story. The true Christmas story is about the rightful king of the world coming into the world and calling people now to move their allegiance from Herod or money or success or people's opinions under the kingship of this Jesus. And the implication of that is you might have to go into a foreign land with him. You might actually have to be somebody who goes into dangerous places. You might be somebody who is a threat too. That's not the Christmas story we hear. But part of the present that God gives you by his presence is turning you into a different type of person who makes Herod's really afraid. You ever thought about Holy Trinity being that type of place? That because you guys worship here on Sunday and you worship the right king, that's gonna somehow make all the other kings in the world really scared of you? But that's the point of Christmas, that Christ the King comes into our lives. And one of the unintended consequences of that is that it's gonna reshuffle the deck of what's powerful and who's in power in our lives. That's what Christmas means. Christ becomes king, and then he now has that ability to reprioritize and reshape every one of my allegiances, even if that allegiance is to myself. But isn't that one of the unintended consequences of children anyway? Their agenda becomes the dominant agenda. (laughs) Well, I think that's true of the Christmas story too. We welcome this Christ child into our lives so that his agenda can become the dominant agenda. The implications of this child in our world had dire consequences for thousands of children, but it has incredible consequences for the rest of the world. One of the things that Dennis Ockham sent me about this Feast of the Innocents, which is celebrated this year, is that these children who lost their lives under Herod were known as the first martyrs. Martyr means witness. means to bear witness to something great. These children lost their lives to bear witness to Christ in their world. And Jesus, that child who was born, calls us to do the same. If you want to find your life, you better lose it. So where in our lives are we both called to bear witness to this Christ child? And what will the consequence be for us in 2014? What will the implications be for our lives? If this child is to be welcomed into our area, what threat does that bring to our sense of our own security, our own sense of power, our own sense of self-protection and dominance? And in welcoming this child, what other powers in our life now are brought down from their thrones? And where is that good news? I'm gonna let you know, for me it's really good news that Jesus gets born every year into me because it wrestles the Herod inside of me. There's a part of Jesus coming that we don't want, and that's the part that prioritizes and reprioritizes our entire life based on him being king. We're going to hear a lot about New Year's resolutions this year, and I'll close on this. What if the only resolution you had this year was to radically welcome in this Christ child into your world, no matter what the cost?
God chose to bring his son into the world knowing that there was an incredible consequence, incredible cost to that. What is the cost in our world for bringing the Christ child in in 2014? I wanna pray and I wanna ask that God would show you that. So if you can close your eyes and bow your hearts and heads and God, we just thank you for this text, uh, which is pretty intimidating. I'd rather preach on chocolate angels and presents and the sentimental Christmas songs that we sing. That's surely the thing that we're reminded most of during this season. Yet in the midst of celebrating Christmas, we're reminded of a scared king and the child who is truly Lord of all. We're reminded that his birth had the unintended consequence of lots of people losing their lives because of what this king means in the world is a threat to those people who are in power now. So Jesus, we relinquish our power. We let go. And we ask you right now in the silence of our own hearts, where is it that you need to reshuffle the priorities of our life by becoming born in us again? Where are we trying to use our own violences to stop Christ from coming into the world? And where can we surrender and give up our own power so that Jesus, you can become Lord and so that baby becomes a man, dies for the sins of the world, resurrects so that we might have hope everlasting. May we become the people of that story and we can only do so by fully surrendering our hearts and our lives to you. So we do so now in the way that you show us. In Jesus' name, amen.